Let's pray together. Oh God, it is amazing the grace that You bestow upon us, earth children, sinners, one and all, that in spite of who we are, You keep coming after us, seeking us, longing to draw us into Your eternal embrace. As we ponder the meaning of what a deeply personal relationship with the God of the universe would be like in the third millennium. Please, let the Holy Scripture be clear. Hide me, hide us, so that Your Word will be front and center. We want to hear it and then we want to heed it. For the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen. On my study wall at home, that's where I do my studying and writing, there hangs a poster big poster, against a shiny all-white background. There is a rather stylized and in all black picture of Martin Luther King Jr. And a single sentence he spoke back in 1963. I look at that sentence and I need its reminder. And I want to share, I want to share that line with you today. Let's put it up on the screen, please. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the what? Rather the conscience. Let me repeat that. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience. On this weekend, in which our nation honors the birth and memory of this great civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the only private citizen, by the way, in U.S. history to have a national holiday in his honor, as we ponder the meaning of his legacy, I wish you would take that single sentence and ruminate upon it, would you? In fact, I wanted to make sure you would not forget it. And so it's the lead sentence in our brand new study guide today as we continue our series. If you go into your worship bulletin right now, pull it out. It's great. Can't miss it. Pull it out. And those of you who came in, three or four of you, with one worship bulletin, there are some dynamite quotations here. I want you to have them. Just hold your hand up. And ushers, would you very quickly, please, make certain that every worshiper has one of these these uh, study guides. And those of you who are watching on television right now, let me, put the, uh, let me put the web address on the screen for you. You can get this study guide at www.pmchurch.tv. That's our address. You click on to our, our new series, America Adrift. And the particular, uh, the, the particular study that you're looking for is the Episcopalian Showdown. Click on there. Or meltdown if you converse with some Episcopalians. It's the, the Episcopalian showdown. Click on and you will have the study guide just, just like we have it. In fact, you can, you can complete this study guide even as you're watching now. Let's take that opening line from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You'll need to, you'll need to insert three words, please. The church must be reminded that it is not the master. Write in the word master, please. It is not the master or the servant. Write in the word servant. Of the state. No, 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 no. The church is not the master or the servant, but Dr. King proclaimed the church is the conscience. 
Write in the word conscience, please. The conscience of the state. But here we are embarking on a brand new journey, and I must ask you out loud, is the church, come on, be honest, is the church really any more the conscience of the state? Is the church, come on, today, the conscience of society? Or has the church yielded to the temptation to mirror society, the very society we were once called to transform? On August 6, 2003, the following press release appeared through the CNN News Service. I want to read it to you. August 6, 2003, Dateline, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The House of Bishops voted Tuesday evening, that was the previous evening, August 5, to confirm the Reverend Gene Robinson as Bishop of New Hampshire, making him the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church's history. Reading on, Robinson needed only a simple majority of the 107 votes to be confirmed. He received 62. It's not so much, he said, a dream as a calling from God after the vote he spoke. I'm really thrilled to be on my way to being the bishop of New Hampshire. Church spokesman Daniel England called Robinson's approval Quote, an important step for the church, the spokesman went on. Some will be elated at this news, others very disappointed, and yet the decorum and the civility throughout leads me to believe that things will hold together. Then another quotation, comments after the vote, Bishop Robert Duncan of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, spoke for those opposed to Robinson's approval, saying they were, quote, filled with sorrow and feel a grief too deep for words. He went on, this body has denied the plain teaching of Scripture and the moral consensus of the church throughout the ages. This body has divided itself from millions of Anglican Christians throughout the world. May God have mercy on His church, end quote. The Episcopalian Showdown front and center, for the whole world to watch. What in the world does that have to do with the likes of you and me? Let me read to you another press release. This came out August 6th, same day. This press release is from Dr. Peter Jensen, Archbishop of Sydney. That would be the Anglican Church in Australia. His press release... I note with profound regret the confirmation of the election of Canon Gene Robinson to be a bishop in the Diocese of New Hampshire. By affirming his election, the House of Bishops and Deputies in the Episcopal Church in the United States have turned away from the traditional teaching of the Christian Church, which is based on the clear teaching of the Scripture. The Episcopalian showdown covered by the global media. What in the world does it have to, have to do with the likes of you and me? One more. One more report from the press. Two days ago, the well-known Guardian newspaper in London, England, two days ago, its story, listen, Anglican, American rather, American Anglican traditionalists are plotting the breakup of their national church and the creation of a new fundamentalist church in the wake of its consecration of the openly gay bishop, Gene Robinson. In spite of public assurances that they only wish to secure oversight by sympathetic conservative bishops, rebel parishes are being secretly told to prepare for the ultimate goal of breaking up the U.S. Episcopal Church, the American equivalent of the Church of England, the Guardian can reveal. The Episcopalian showdown, some would say meltdown. Played out on the stage of the public, now indeed threatens the 2.3 million Episcopalians in the United States and the 73 million Anglicans worldwide. But what in the world, why in the world should that concern us? Before answering that, 
I need to say that my heart goes out to our Episcopalian friends and neighbors who have been forced to suffer through this fractious debate played out in the national press. Look at I know how it feels. Huh? I know how I have suffered when aberrant Adventist behavior, don't kid me, there has been, or misunderstood Adventist belief is pummeled in the secular press. I tell you what, it is embarrassing. You blush for your church because of the actions of those you are certain do not represent the church you love and serve. This can't be us. Why are you taking this picture of us to the world? I can only imagine how our many Episcopalian friends and neighbors have blushed as well. Let me tell you something. Let me, may I put their coat of arms on the screen? The Episcopal Church, an American church, has served this nation honorably throughout the course of American history. And by the way, that's the Episcopal Church in Niles. They have bequeathed presidents to us and social activists that have transformed our society for the better. Nevertheless, and I want to say this as kindly as I can, but it cannot be left unsaid. This denomination's majority decision this past August to ordain a practicing homosexual priest and pastor as bishop, Gene Robinson, who had been at least up to that point outwardly happily married with a wife and two children but who somewhere along the way made the decision to abandon his heterosexual life, leave his family, and embrace an open homosexual lifestyle with a live-in partner. For the Episcopalian church leaders and delegates to choose to anoint that man as spiritual leader, as spiritual model, as spiritual shepherd for the Diocese of New Hampshire was and remains a stunning corporate and ecclesiastical abrogation of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. And look, 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 look. while it is not our place to judge each other as denominations, as Christians, as human beings, period, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Nevertheless, we cannot ignore the compelling call of God in the midst of this ecclesiastical meltdown. What call of God? Open your Bible, please, right now to our theme chapter, theme verse for this new short series, America Adrift. Open your Bible, please, to the center of the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible. Please find Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Let's return to where we were last weekend, to verse 126. Oh, this is a long chapter, 176 verses in one chapter. Wow. But let's go to verse 126, please. Psalm 119. 126. And I'm going to read it out of the New International Version. And if you wish, why don't you just go ahead and fill in the study guide as we read it. Because we'll, you will see there's a blank. It is time for you to act, O Lord, your law. Would you write in the word law, please? Your law is being broken. The very fact that Psalm 119 was included in the Psalter is indicative that throughout the course of human history, God has had people, get this, God has had people who are jealous for His authority and defensive of His law. In fact, you read Psalm 119, it's not only defensive of His law, it's effusive of His law. Have you ever read Psalm 119 through in one setting? Come on, have you? Have you ever read all 107? You, you, you've got to do it. And you will sense what is coursing through the veins of David. I had a chance to read Psalm 119 through just a, a few months ago. I was flying down to Trinidad to Caribbean Union College for their graduation last May. And wouldn't you know it, you're, you're flying out of Chicago and another spring thunderstorm. And so we're delayed. 
we're delayed so long that by the time we get to Miami, where I can catch my connecting flight to the, that beautiful Caribbean island, we get there just in time to see the plane pulling away. I, I'm looking out the window, and it's pulling away, the flight to Trinidad. And the next flight will be 24 hours later, thank you. So now I'm flying down. It's Friday evening. And the sun is setting, and we're at 30,000 feet, and we are flying over a, a, a Caribbean storm below. Thunderheads, but they turn pink and orange, and I'm thinking, I'm going to have worship right here. I'll have Vespers. I had just bought this uh, New International Version. It was new, and so I said, I'm going to read Psalm 119 through. And I began to cross-reference. Hey, boy, that, hey, that word repeats. Look at that. Whoa, I remember that theme. What I want to share with you now, if you'll get your study guide out, you can check it out later. I want to share some ruminations from 30,000 feet. What I've discovered about Psalm 119. Would that be okay? Take your study guide out. Let's fill this in. Please observe these points. Number one, nearly every one of the 176 verses contains the word law. Would you write it in, please? The word law or one of its synonyms. That would be statutes, precepts, word, decrees, commandments. I found one exception. There might be, there might be two. Nearly every one. Of the 176 verses. By the way, you did know this, didn't you? Psalm 119 is an acrostic. Write in the word acrostic. It is an acrostic psalm. That means there are eight verses in a stanza. And every new stanza begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters in Hebrew times eight is 176. See? And some of your Bibles will show the, the, uh, the, the stanzas carefully designated. All right. Guess how many times... David calls out to obey or keep the law. Would you write in the number 25, please? Write in the number 25. It says 24 there, but early this morning I just stumbled on a word I had missed, so I circled it. It was another obey, and so that makes it 25. So you have the updated revised version now, see? 25. Let's put up the text. Take a look at a text that describes this. Uh, this would be verse 2 of Psalm 119. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Twenty-five times he's going to say, keep, obey, keep, obey, keep, obey. All right, let's hasten on. How many times do you suppose David declares, I love your law? Nine times. Write it in. Nine. And take a look at this text. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Now, you must understand that the word law in Hebrew, Torah, can, can, can refer to the Decalogue as it does, but it can also refer to all the written corpus of God's revelation. So it could be the whole Bible in this case. So nine times David declares he loves God's law. Let's go. How many times do you suppose David says he meditates on God's law? Write it in. Eight. Eight times. Look at this text. This would be verse 15 of that longest chapter. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I just meditate on it. Okay, what's the next one? Oh, how many times does David say he delights? I delight in your law. Write it down. Six. Six times. He delights in it. In fact, what is this? Verse 24. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. I love your law. I love it. I delight in it. You know how many times David says, I hope in your law? Five times. Write it down, please. Five times. Let's take a look at that text. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. Wow. 
Hey, by the way, you want to know how God's friends... I mean, we're talking about God's closest friends here now. David was a man after God's own heart. You want to be like David? You want to be a man after God's own heart? Then you're going to have to develop an attitude towards God's law. Just David had an attitude about the law. He loved it. You know how they value the law? Look at, look at verse... Back to verse 126... We just, uh, we, we open with that. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken. Now notice David goes on, verse 127. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. And because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Oh God, more than pure gold. Would you write it in, please? Gold, more than pure gold. Karen and I last, uh, last April were in England and we had the privilege of visiting the Tower of England. No, sorry, the Tower of London, rather. And inside, all oh, the amassed gold of the English monarchy. Wow, it's dazzling. David said, ah, psh, I love your law more than all that gold. What a testimony. Hey, when's the last time you said to your friend, you said to your, your colleagues, hey, you know what? I love God's law more than gold itself. That, that would be a very countercultural statement to make, now wouldn't it? Yeah. Look at David. Wow. Throughout history, would you write this in, please? Throughout history, God has always had a people who have championed His law. Write it in, please. They have championed His law and honored His authority. Because that's what the law is all about. This mighty conflict over the moral law of God is an issue. At issue is authority. Whose authority stands on this earth? That. Don't let anybody kid you. That's the hidden agenda. And it isn't hidden. Alright? God has always had a people who have championed His law and honored His authority even if it meant He had to sequester this people in the rocky crags of the Piedmont Alps. This last week, you know what I did? I went to my shelf and I pulled down the old book, J.A. Wiley's History of the Walden Seas. And I turned those pages made sacred with the story, the glorious story of a people sequestered in the peaks to preserve God's truth and law. Do, do we have the pictures? Of the, have you already put them up? Oh, take a look at that. Leave those up for a while. I want to tell you a couple stories straight out of Wiley's history. You know what? They call it the Christmas of 1400. It was a, it was a, a disastrous night. Christmas night! The opposing forces sent an army under the cover of cold night to decimate this village, this village rather, uh, beneath those peaks. Word came to the village. They raced out into the cold with the uh, infirm, the aged, and the children. Next morning, those that weren't slaughtered, 80 babies, 80 children found frozen the next morning. That same village, I don't know, four or five decades later, according to Wiley's history, same village is now marked for extermination. So the word comes this time, and the people have at least advanced word enough to get up to a cavern. In French, it is now named the Refuge. The, the Vaudois, the Vaudois, or the Waldensians, went, climbed up to that, that cavern. It had a rocky ledge. They could look and tell, if anybody from the valley is coming, we'll spot them. We're safe here. But the cunning commander of the opposition forces knows that. And he sends his troops over the backside of the mountain. And they come down from the top. And then by ropes. And the Waldensians, 3,000 of that village, 3,000 fled to the bosom of that cavern. And the commander said, all right, all the trees and tinder in front of this mouth. They lit the tinder. And that black billowing smoke... 3,000. Of those 3,500 were, 400 rather, were infants and children. 
the historian Mustan, commenting on that story, wrote, Never again did the Vaudois church raise its head in these blood-stained valleys. They were decimated. You and I are singing a moment ago, the church has one foundation, and I'm getting tears in my eyes as we come to stanza three. Though with a scornful wonder men see her, the church sore oppressed, though foes would rend asunder the rock where she doth rest, yet saints their faith are keeping their cry. You sang this. Their cry goes up, how long and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. We don't understand the shoulders, the broad shoulders we stand upon as a community of faith. Do you know what the Waldensians believed? Wiley actually summarizes their the, the corpus of their faith. And in fact, yeah, I put it here in the study guide because you've got to see this. See if this sounds familiar, huh? Does this sound familiar? Here's what they believe. Read it there. The theology taught in former ages in the peak environed valley was drawn from the Bible. All right, here's what the uh, Waldensians believed. The Vaudois. The atoning death and justifying righteousness of Christ was its cardinal truth. The, no, the noble lesion sets forth with tolerable clearness, that's one of their documents, the doctrine of the Trinity, the fall of man, the incarnation of the Son, and now the emphasis is mine, the perpetual authority of the Decalogue as given by God, the need of divine grace in order to do good works, the necessity of holiness, the institution of the ministry, the resurrection of the body, and the eternal bliss of heaven. Does that sound familiar to you? God preserved it in the rocky holes of snow-crested Alps. Bring it on. I have my people. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night, even in the cave. Wow. Did you catch that? God has had, God will have a people who honor, how did Wiley put it here, the perpetual authority of the Decalogue as given by God, not as interpreted by society, not as defined by government, not as dictated by culture, but rather the, the perpetual authority of the law of God as given by God, Almighty God Himself. Just like the Waldensians, you'll have a people just like David. What did David cry out? Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. How I love your law. He will have such a people at the end of time. You say, prove it to me, Dwight. Okay, thank you. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. At the end of time, just before the return of Jesus, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. No matter what society, no matter what Christian denominations might decide or vote, God will have a people at the end who will stand for Him keeping His commandments and holding on to the faith of Jesus. I want to be a part of that people, don't you? I want to be a part of that people. I want to tell you something. The devil is furious, despising the law of God. Hates it with a bloody hatred. You say, yeah, you're, you're, you're a little bit of a homiletical hyperbole. Oh, really? Same Apocalypse, chapter 12, verse 17. Take a look at this. Then the dragon was enraged. Enraged. Who's the dragon, by the way? It's the enemy. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who inherited the legacy of the Waldensians, I'm going for them now. He went to make war with the rest of their offspring. Who are they? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He is furious 
Now, I want to share something with you. Came too late to put into our study guide. I don't know why, but God woke me up early, early, an hour earlier than my alarm this morning. And he laid a burden that has nothing to do with this subject on my heart. And so, anyway, go down to the study and pray and think. And I'm just working my way through Scripture, just reaching, grabbing, and all of a sudden, boom, I come to this. And I met with my PowerPoint guy at 8 this morning. I said, listen, we have to put these words, at least on the screen, since it didn't make your study guide. I want you to read words written back in 1895. Why is this journey we're on so significant as a study? Take a look at this, please. The condition of the world previous to the first appearing of Christ is a picture of the condition of the world just previous to his second advent. Oh, I knew that. The same iniquity will exist. Satan manifests the same delusive power upon the minds of men and women. He is setting his trained agents at work and moving them to intense activity. Go on. He is securing his army of human agents to engage the last conflict against the Prince of Life. Emphasis mind now. To overthrow the what? To overthrow the law of God, which is the very foundation of God's throne. That's why he's furious. That law is God's foundation. If I can destroy that law, I'm king on this planet. I'm prince. He has to destroy it to survive. He has to. He has no choice. I received a letter this last week. From an Episcopalian listener, whom I happen to know and love. He was listening last Sabbath to our study, Is Gay Marriage Really That?, in which we carefully and prayerfully examine God's position as revealed in Holy Scripture regarding homosexual practice. And may I just remind you, in case you forgot, nowhere does God condemn homosexual or heterosexuals in the Scripture. In fact, you need to understand this. That is an artificial categorization. The, the sexual orientation is unknown to the ancient mind. That's a recent invention. What God does condemn is homosexual or heterosexual intercourse outside of the marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. So he's listening. And by the way, if you missed, if you missed that study, I, I wish you can have all the leisure of the time you need. Go back to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you right now. www.pmchurch.tv If you missed last weekend's study, go to it. Click on there. Is gay marriage really that? And you, at your leisure, examine the biblical evidence. Well, my Episcopalian friend wrote me this last week. And he told me that he was at the Minneapolis Assembly when the historic vote to ordain a practicing homosexual pastor as bishop was taken. Now, my friend happens to be very supportive of that vote. And then he said, you know, you must understand, Dwight, and of course this is a paraphrase, you must understand that your position flies in the face of strong scholarship and social and scientific understanding. I tell you what, it was a very thoughtful letter, and it deserved a thoughtful reply. And I found that reply in a very thought-filled book. Written by a scholar. All the credentials up to his eyeballs. He's, he is professor of New Testament at Duke University's Divinity School. Previously taught at Yale University. And his name is Richard B. Hayes. He's written a marvelous book called The, uh, the Moral Vision. There it is. The Moral Vision of the New Testament. 
I shared with my Episcopalian friend a quotation because he wanted scholarship. Here it is. And I, I've never shared these words with you, so I want you to have it. It's in your study guide as well. Take a look at Dr. Hayes' conclusion from his study. I'm quoting now. Though only a few biblical texts speak of homoerotic activity, all that do mention it express unqualified disapproval, writes this scholar. Thus, on this issue, there is no synthetic problem for New Testament ethics. In this respect, the issue of homosexuality differs significantly from matters such as slavery. People will come to you and say, listen, you've got to have it. You, didn't have, you, you were supportive of slaves before. You changed your mind. So now you're going to change your mind on, on this. No, 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 no. The issue differs significantly from matters such as slavery or the subordination of women concerning which the Bible contains internal tensions and counterposed witnesses. Here it is, the biblical witness against homosexual practice. His whole chapter is devoted to a friend of his who died of AIDS. He's not condemning homosexuals. His point, however, is the biblical witness against homosexual practice is univocal. One voice. And that is, God forbids it. Period. So writes one of the eminent New Testament scholars of our nation. So when a church or a denomination willfully chooses to ignore or reject that univocal, that one voice witness, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Here's what you and I must do. Just like the Waldensians, we must become immersed in the Word of God. I hear a distant rumble and it portends the moral Armageddon are God's people. Are you and I, are we ready? Hmm? Let me remind you, ladies and gentlemen, a society, think, 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 a society and government and churches that reject the seventh commandment will have no hesitation one day in repudiating the fourth commandment and all those who would be loyal to the fourth commandment. It's not the fourth now. It's the seventh. You just take care of them one by one is all. Listen. Think you got a brain. Watch. And pray, Jesus said. By the way, the great controversy, that apocalyptic classic, in a single sentence describes what we saw take place last summer. Very prescient when it comes to the clergy. Take a look at this. This didn't get into your study guide. You may want to jot the page number down. Great controversy. Let's put it on the screen, please. As the controversy extends into new fields and the minds of the people are called to God's downtrodden law, the clergy will put forth almost superhuman efforts to shut away the light. Which is why you can never base your faith on any of us in the clergy. Not a one. Not a theologian. Not an ecclesiastical leader. Not a little parish pastor or priest. You cannot rely on the word of the clergy. Look at the fracture today. Although I am very grateful to report to you that not all clergy decide to reject with superhuman effort the downtrodden law of God. One of the bright Anglican scholars alive today, his name is J.I. Packer. Do you know what he did? 
this evangelical Anglican scholar living in Canada. He walked out. He himself, June 2002, he walked out of the Synod of the Anglican Diocese of New Westminster, Canada, when they authorized their bishop to produce a service for blessing same-sex unions. He walked out on his church. Do you know why he walked out on his church? He wrote an apology, a defense of his decision, in the January, what is it, the January 21 issue of Christianity Today this last year. And I want you to read those words. They are in your study guide. J.I. Packer, the brilliant Anglican theologian. Why did you walk out on your own church? Here he explains it. His opening words. Why did I walk out with the others? Because this decision, taken in its context, falsifies the gospel of Christ, abandons the authority of Scripture. You're not listening to an Adventist. You're listening to an Anglican scholar. This decision falsifies the gospel of Christ, abandons the authority of Scripture, jeopardizes the salvation of fellow human beings, and betrays the church in its God-appointed role as the bastion and bulwark of divine truth, end quote. Oh, he walks out on his own church. Because he cannot countenance so blatant an assault on the moral law and truth of God. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, the meltdown that is coming is even greater than this. Are you ready? Can I, can you, can we defend the moral authority of the Decalogue to a decadent society? You willing to stand up? You willing to be the sore thumb? You, want, you willing to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The only three in an entire culture who are willing to stand up. It's going to take some young adults who have the guts, the chutzpah for Christ. How can I have that, Dwight? How can I have it? I'll tell you how. Last verse. May I leave this with you? Psalm 119. Same chapter. Look at verse 11. That's how you're going to have it. Verse 11, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word, O God, I have hid in my heart that I might not what? That I might not sin. I don't want to sin against you, God. I'm going to hide your word in my heart. What's that mean? That means become immersed, become saturated in the holy word of God. Meditate on the word. You know what I started doing this last week? Memorizing the old dusty Ten Commandments in the King James of all things. I'm memorizing it. Why? Because I just want to have it. Your word have I hid in my heart, O God, that I might not sin against you. You know what? You can be then just like Jesus. Jesus, who when he came to his showdown and he's in the crosshairs of the very same enemy, Jesus said, hey, well, I want to tell you something, boy. It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I've lived on the words of the mouth of God. It is written. We need a new generation that will live the same way Jesus lived on the word of God. And you're it. You know what Jesus said? Psalm 40, verse 8. Oh, I delight to do Thy will, O God. Thy law is in my heart. When you invite Jesus into your heart, you get the law that's in His heart into your heart as well. You get the law with the lawgiver. You get it. Become immersed. Immersed. Saturated. We are facing an impending moral Armageddon. We must get ready. Not by... I'm going to... Not... For our own salvation alone, but for the sake of this nation. I end now with a letter from a Lutheran pastor. Written just before the Minneapolis August 5 vote. 
I've checked on the veracity of this letter. It was written to a friend of mine. The letter is true. The only reason I'm sharing this letter with you because I, is because I'm hoping you'll pick, up, you'll pick up the hint that today in this nation there are literally tens of thousands of Christians in every communion who are desperately now in the light of their theological leaders, ecclesiastical leaders' decisions, looking for a kindred spirit community that they might once again align themselves with, with honor to their conscience. Listen to this letter. This is a friend of mine, Mike Cawley. He's, did I already tell you this? He's, uh, he was president of Pennsylvania Conference when he got this letter. He's now president of Florida. All right. Dear Mr. Cawley, I am a Lutheran minister and became acquainted with the Seventh-day Adventist Church through a friend. The friend gave me your email address during, during a conversation we had on the happenings within several so-called mainline denominations as you are no doubt aware, the Episcopal Church in New Hampshire recently installed as their bishop a man who is a practicing homosexual. They hadn't done the installation until November, but the decision had been made. The Lutheran Church, of which I am a member, is in full communion relationship with the Episcopal Church. The Lutheran Church is also in the process of considering the ordination of practicing homosexuals. I am concerned about the church bodies, but I am even more concerned about people within the individual churches. There is no doubt that some will and many may leave the Lutheran Church when the decision to ordain homosexuals is made and even in response to the recent action in New Hampshire. The suggestion or challenge that I have for you, it's the whole point of this email, the suggestion or challenge I have for you is for the Seventh-day Adventists to step up to the plate, so to speak. If the Seventh-day Adventists have sound doctrine, as I and other Lutheran pastors, I know, believe you do, perhaps the Seventh-day Adventists will be able to offer the so-called mainline denominations a choice for the truth, which is Jesus Himself. Doesn't Jesus desire that none would be lost? He ends his letter. It is a very sad thing for me to see a church body that I took an oath to support moving towards what seems to be a betrayal of scriptural truth. Nevertheless, it is most important to see those who could be led astray by the institution that they trust and those who might feel lost spiritually or betrayed by that institution have an alternative for sound doctrine and right living available to them. Please believe me. That I have nothing to gain and indeed may have something to lose by writing you. The gospel of our Lord is my motivation. Peace be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand what's going on? The most stunning assault in the history of the human race against the moral law of God. There are thinking men and women like this Lutheran pastor, like J.I. Packer. Tens of thousands of men and women who are saying, wait a minute, time out. This can't be right. Is there anybody left who believes the Word of God? God is preparing a mighty global movement of people who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus and He's raising them up. The big question to end with today is, will you? I'm not saying are you, because you're not there yet, and neither am I. Will you be a part of that movement when the call comes? Because in fair weather, nobody knows whether that little oak, that little sapling can take the fury of strong wind. But plant it on the top of a mountain... It will be shaped 
to stand a final storm. It's fine today. But beyond today. What does that mean for the likes of you and me? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's time to make that same decision. You ready to? Are you? Immerse yourself in the Word of God. You don't need me to tell you how to read it. You just read it. Immerse yourself in the Word of Christ. In the words of James Russell Lowell, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side, some great cause, God's new Messiah offering each the bloom or blight and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and the night. It's one of the great hymns in our hymnal. Would you open your hymnal please to hymn 606. And while you're finding it, before the organ begins, I want you to notice the, I want you to notice the last stanza. Oh, this hymn stirs me to the depths of my soul. Look at that last stanza, 606. You got it open? You got the hymnal right there in your lap? Open to 606. Look at the last stanza. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet tis truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold. Think Waldensians. Village is gone. Though her portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow keeping watch above His own. Isn't that great? Stand up with me. Stand up with me right now. Let's sing it. 606. Four stanzas. We're going to sing our hearts out as we commit to God to be the people like David and the Waldensians who love His law.